Well, greetings, Gateway family. Good to see all of you here this morning. Um, just want to reiterate a couple of things. Um, number one would be the women's event that's coming up. And I always want to challenge all of you husbands out there. You know the date. You've known the date for a bit. And if you have little ones, um, make it a point to be home to watch the little ones so that your wife can go. Um, we're setting this up for her benefit and for the, the ladies of the church. And uh, we want to make sure that um, she knows and that you know um, that we are expecting you to do your part. Now, we understand sometimes you have to work, things happen, and uh, there is um, a, a means by which some child care can be available for those who truly need it. And if that's the case, um, Kathy Cam is the person to talk to. That information is on Realm. Um, but, uh, man, if, you, if you're available, make sure you're available to watch those kids so that your wife can go and be a part of this ladies' ministry. Is that gentle enough and bold enough? You guys got it, all right? All right, good. Hopefully, hopefully we get that, right? Um, secondly, um, I did talk with Matthias uh, Mojica Sr. this week, and uh, he extends his greetings to all of you. If you don't know who Matias Mojica is, he is our ministry partner in Bolivia, in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, and uh, continue to pray for them. Um, unusual situation there, although he is... I want to say the, the pastor that oversees pastors, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been hard for them during this COVID season to continue um, kind of shepherding all those different churches. They are actually getting hit with the, a Brazilian form of the virus, and all the borders are closed um, into Brazil and places, and they're just kind of anticipating what's happening next with, uh, with COVID. And uh, so just be in prayer for them. Um, as they kind of wrestle through that. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you again. Um, you may have been with us uh, uh, on Easter Sunday, of course, which was a day that we stop and we pause and we, we focus our time a little bit on the resurrection and the implications of that. But our habit is to work our way through the, the Word of God, in particular a book of the Bible, and we're in the book of Exodus. But not only are we in the book of Exodus, we're in the book of Exodus, if you might want to say, in a, an arena where the text is, for many people, a hard text, simply because it's full of instructions and law and directions and details, and it's so easy for us to kind of blow through this. And yet, what we're going to find is that what we have in our text is so critically important for us to understanding what it is that God uh, reveals to us about his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you now to go to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to stand together we're going to read this text, and uh, then we're going to allow God, hopefully, to, to guide us and to shape us um, through this passage. So Exodus chapter 28, um, it should be up on the screen. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, um, but let's read this chapter together. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful men whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. 
And thou shalt make an ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of fine filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, of fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span on its length and a span in its breadth. You shall set it in its uh, in it four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and uh, carbuncle shall be the first row, and on the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And on the third row, a uh, Jacinth and agate and amethyst, and the fourth row, beryl and onyx and jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breastplate twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold into the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece, and the two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and you shall attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the ends of the breastpiece and on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod and its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to, to regular remembrance before the Lord. And the breastpiece of judgment you shall put, uh, in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and, and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod of, of all blue, um, it shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening uh, in a garment so that it may not tear. 
On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the, the, the people of Israel consecrate to the, uh, as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checkered work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Lord, we come to you. Uh, Lord, just overwhelmed with the detail, detail and the, the, the magnificence and the description of these priestly garments. And Lord, even in all of that, Lord, we recognize that you have not given us this detail just to, to kind of give us a history lesson. But Lord, you've given us this detail so that you might teach us and shape us and grow us in our understanding of who you are and in our relationship with you. And so, Lord, we ask that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us. And, Lord, as a result of that, what we are not, Lord, you would make us. And, Lord, that also what we have not, Lord, you would give us. And, Lord, allow me as your messenger today, Lord, to reflect carefully and accurately and clearly the intent of this passage and, Lord, how it speaks to your people today. Lord, may I do that for your glory. May our, our gathering today be eager and, and, and endeavor, Lord, to embrace the truth and the food that you have to offer and to swallow it with joy, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, like many of you, I had to wait to get my COVID-19 vaccination. Um, I did the thing that everyone was saying you needed to do. I went to um, my, um, was it myturn.ca.gov, and I filled in all the information, and I just didn't qualify. Every time I went back and back, I didn't qualify. I didn't meet the age or the health or the vocational requirements. So I had no access. I had, I had to wait like so many other people were doing. But finally, and interestingly, surprisingly, um, when I went to kp.org, because I have Kaiser as my health insurance, I you know, filled some stuff in, and boom, suddenly I had access to make an appointment and to get my first shot. 
and my appointment was in Oakland at the convention center. And when I arrived, um, they had a, a special area in a parking garage for me. So I was given access to this area, and I went and parked my car, and I had access to a shuttle that would take me to the front door so I could get out and stand in line. Of course, there wasn't much of a line when I went there, but there were certainly a gauntlet of obstacles. And I had to overcome those obstacles before they would let me in. I had to have proof of my appointment. I had to sanitize my hands in their presence. I had to make sure that I was wearing my mask appropriately. And then as I went through, I had to present my medical card and my photo ID. It was only then that I was given full access to receive my vaccination. And I'm only halfway there, okay? You might say I'm half-baked, they might say, right? That's probably appropriate. Um, And friends, life is full of examples like this, isn't it? Where, Where our access is limited and only granted with certain permissions. For example, you, you go on a school campus to go anywhere in the school, you have to first go to the school office and check in, and they need to know that you're there. If you're going to ride on BART, you have to buy a ticket. If you are opening a safety deposit box, usually there's a dual key system, which means you can't go in there unless you have one of the tellers or bankers to go in there with you. When you enter the freeway, at least during the week, you have to wait for the light to turn green before you can go. Getting on an airplane, you've got to go through security, you've got to you know, pr- show your ticket, you've got to present your passport. And then when you're voting in a national election, you have to... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to necessarily get too carried away there, but, but there are these things that are restrictions that we have before us in the world in which we live. Now, we could list a lot more examples, but friends, access into the presence of God. Now, that's another thing. Age, ethnicity, health, photo photo ID, none of those things matter. There is only one way to have access into the presence of God. And the Apostle Paul tells us as much in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. Now, just follow this passage This verse, he says, for through him, that's talking about Christ, through him, he says, we both. And he's arguing here for Jews and Gentiles becoming one. So the the both is talking about those two groups. He's saying we have access through Christ in one spirit to the Father. Our access to the Father comes by virtue of Christ. Now, this word access is used in the scriptures Um, uniquely for the person and work of Christ. In other words, it's always connected in one way or another to the person of Christ or the work of Christ. And it's a word word that has the idea of an introduction. And if you uh, look in classical Greek, and that means how the Greek language is used outside of the Bible, what you find is that this word is often used to describe the introduction to a king, your introduction to, to a king. In other words, it's a royal introduction. Someone is coming in to see the king, and you are welcomed in, and you are introduced to that king. And friends, it's a very fitting picture of what Christ does for us as he gives us a royal introduction to the Father. Now friends, we are those who are absolutely unworthy to enter the throne room of God. But Christ 
on the basis of his worth, on the basis of his credentials, is able to give us a royal introduction before the throne. Now, friends, if you're a child of God today, that is a throne of grace. But before the work of the cross actually took root in your heart, it was a throne of judgment. So Christ introduces us that we might have boldness to approach this throne of grace. He introduces us. He presents us to this royal father who's seated on the throne without his mediatorial role. And without that royal introduction, we have absolutely no right. We have no grounds. We have no basis or of attempting even to enter and to approach God whatsoever. And what we read and understand in all its grandeur here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 is rooted in Exodus 28, where God introduces and establishes his priestly order. Hear this, friends. We cannot understand the mediatorial role of Christ without understanding what God reveals here in Exodus 28. One well-known pastor talks about we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You cannot unhitch yourselves from the Old Testament. The book of Exodus is fueling what's in the New Testament. You will not have an understanding of who Christ is in in the New Testament if you don't have an understanding of who Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. So this text is all about God creating a way for his people to have access to him on a regular basis. And what we've already seen is that God does that by dwelling with his people in a tabernacle. And then he continues to do that by meeting with his people via the representation of priests. And so what we have in Exodus 28 was to be true for the worship in the tabernacle and in the temple, but ultimately it points to the person of Christ, our great high priest. So when we take a look at at God's instructions for his priestly order, and in particular the high priest, we're given here a type, a picture, an object lesson, if you you would, a, a foreshadowing of our wonderful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we enter our text today, we want to discover the role and the function of Israel's high priest. But we also want to see how it points to Jesus. So the proposition this morning is this, and we'll, we'll build and we'll ultimately point to this. How Jesus, our high priest, bears our burden before the Father. Now, I want to draw your attention to a theme that runs through this text. It's found in verse 12, and Aaron shall bear their names. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear their names. Verse 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people. Verse 38, and Aaron shall bear any guilt. Verse 43, lest they bear guilt and die. Who is it that's going to bear the guilt And the name and the responsibility for the people of God. Well, first of all, it's going to be the high priest. 
ultimately it's going to be Christ. And that's why we say how Jesus, our high priest, bears our burden before the Father. Now, friends, where God is taking us in this text is into a place that many of us is just a mystery. But we need to see the beauty of what God is teaching us in this passage. Just thinking from a structural perspective, and this will be our outline today, but you're going to see verses 1 through 5, the priest calling. It's, it's really an introduction. It's kind of setting the stage. It, it, it ends with, in verse 40, 43, the priest's commission. It's really a conclusion. You have like a top and a tail, an introduction and conclusion. And nestled in between that, from verses 6 through verse 39, you have this glorious display of the priest's garments. And that's where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time. But let's jump in now to the priest's calling. I'll read verse 1 again. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. I want you to notice, first of all, their divine calling. This is God calling out Aaron and his sons and his descendants to take up the responsibility of being a priestly order. And I want you to notice here that this this is God choosing Aaron and his sons and his priests. There was no vote that was taking place. There was no kind of popularity contest to see which family would actually do this role. There was no competition, right? It wasn't like, you know, survivor. If you win this, you get to be in the priestly role. No, God in his own wisdom and in his own sovereignty declares that Aaron is going to be the high priest and his sons are going to be the priests. This was a divine calling. Look, God comes to you and says, you're going to do this. You probably want to do it. And friends, there is an aspect here, I'll just spread this out a little bit. When God calls people to pastoral ministry, it's not just something, well, I could do this, I could do this. No, it's a calling. This translates, friends. Now, not only is is this a divine calling where God is choosing Aaron and his sons as priests, but there's a function of the priesthood that is laid out for us in this section. So I want to broadly just kind of go through a collection of words and phrases that are found in this text so that we can kind of come to a definition of the priest's function. Just listen. I think even up on on the screen, you might have these words. He says, my priesthood in verse 3. He says, to serve me as priest three times in our text. To minister in verses 35 and 42. Before the Lord, talking about the location specifically before the Lord, verse 12, 29, 30, twice there in verse 30, and then verse 38. Uh, The idea of being accepted, again, was part of the the, the idea of of why they were doing what they were doing. And then the holy place. This is the the, the focal point, the, the heart of what's happening in the tabernacle in particular. So we put all of that together, and here's what we come up with. The priests are a divinely appointed order established by God to serve him by ministering before God on behalf of the people in the holy place. That's a mouthful. 
But we're taking all of these descriptions of function and putting them all together to help us understand God not only wanted to have a tabernacle, but he wanted to have priests that were serving in that tabernacle before him. Right? On behalf of the people. So we could summarize it and say it this way. They represent God's accepted people before God in his holy place. So friends, this is a serious and sacred, by that I mean holy, responsibility given specifically to Aaron and his sons. Now you might know if you have a, a, some history in the word of God, as we read through Aaron's sons, two names jump out at you. Nadab and Abihu, because they would bring shame on the priestly order. And, and we would find that in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, that they, they, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Friends, this was no casual responsibility. You didn't go hopping home, skipping and saying, man, I get to be a priest. You are putting yourself in danger by serving as God's priest. It was a wonderful responsibility, but that responsibility came with its own consequences. Their divine calling. Secondly, notice the holy garments. We have a summary here of the holy garments listed um, here in verses 2 through 5. And there's two separate roles given to us, each with different but similar sets of garments. First of all, you have Aaron, the high priest, and we have a listing then of what his garments are. A breastpiece, this is verse 4, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkered work, a turban, a sash. If you jump down to verse 40, you will see what Aaron's sons might well say, the, the normal, regular priests. They would have coats and sashes and caps. And there are three distinguishing marks for these garments that we can grasp from the text here. Number one, they are to reflect the nature of the tabernacle. In other words, if you remember, the tabernacle was heaven on earth. And so these garments reflected that, that reality. In fact, we're, we're told in both cases that they are to reflect the holiness, the glory, and the beauty of heaven. I mean, so these are no small things. This was, this, God is seeking to communicate through the priests that not only are they in the presence of God, I might say a reflection of heaven, they themselves are to be clothed in such a way that, that reflects being uh, the, the, the habitation of heaven. Secondly, they, they require the same skill needed uh, that was used in the tabernacle. So they're to be created by skillful people who, will, who are filled by God with the spirit of skill. This, again, was a, a unique skill that was empowered by God for the creation, not only of the tabernacle, but also of these holy garments. Third, they're to be made with the same material used in the tabernacle. The same fabric is used in the construction uh, as used in the construction of the tabernacle, gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And God goes in great detail to describe these little bits and pieces, doesn't he? And he's wanting to, he's wanting to scream at us to say, look, this is the same stuff that's in the tabernacle. 
These are serving in a unique way in the place that is where I dwell. So we have here a picture of holy priests wearing holy garments, serving the Lord in his holy place as representatives of the people of God. Friends, all of this ornate detail matters to God. He's taken time to give these specific uh, instructions. And it should remind us that for God, worship is important. I mean, we should come away just from reading this section here, saying to ourselves, God cares about how people are clothed when they come to worship him. And it should matter to us. Holy and righteous garments are the means by which God's people come to worship him. So let's look now at these garments in particular. The priest's clothes, verses 6 through 39. What is the responsibility of the high priest? It's to carry the burden of the people before the Lord. And he's to approach God wearing holy garments. And these garments are described in some form, but not to be crude, all the way from the underwear to the hat that he has on his head. And in verses 6 through 39, we are given a detailed description of four garments in particular, unique to Aaron's role as a high priest. The ephod, the breastplate, or breastpiece, sorry, the robe, and the turban. And each of them will teach us aspects of how God's people are represented by the high priest when he goes to minister before the Lord. And each of them will shed light on how Christ represents us before the Father, his unique role as mediator. So let's jump in to the first piece, the ephod of remembrance, I'm calling it. And we wanted to kind of just take a little bit of time just to describe what it says, kind of summarize what it says there in the text. The ephod was a beautiful garment of gold and blue, purple and scarlet. It was a sleeveless garment that hung about, uh, hung over the shoulders down to about the knees On the shoulders were two stones, and on one stone were six names of the sons uh, of Israel. On the other shoulder were uh, another stone with the the other six names, all written in birth order. So this is the picture. This This is what the priest is wearing. But we want to think now about the significance of this ephod. Now, it can be easy when we come to any of these garments to, to spiritualize. In other words, to, to put into the descriptions here a spiritual lesson that isn't necessarily intended by God to be there or to allegorize it in some way. And what we need to be careful to do is allow the text to, to, to reveal to us the intent and the symbolism rather than just to sit back and ponder and kind of come up with our own thing. We must let the text rule our interpretation here. And when we do, what we will find is that it will be revealing as as well as refreshing. And notice, if you would please, Exodus 28 and verse 12. And this is the heart of what, what God is saying about the ephod here. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders for remembrance. So we see in this purpose statement two important truths. The high priest's ability and the high priest's activity. Let's first of all talk about his ability to bear the people on his shoulders. The shoulders 
They're a symbol of strength. They're a symbol of, of power. They're a symbol of ability. It speaks of the high priest's ability, his strength, his authority to stand before God and represent the people of God. This was uniquely Aaron's responsibility. It would be the responsibility of all the high priests that were to come after him to go in before God and bear the weight for the nation. No other priest could enter the presence of God and bear the weight of the people on his shoulder before God. Only the high priest could do it. Only he had the authority. Only he had the power. Only he has the ability to do it. And so it speaks of Christ's ability and power to hold his people. Hear this. Just as Aaron took the stones into the presence of the Lord, so Christ takes his people, he bears his people into the presence of the Lord. He bears us on his mighty, omnipotent shoulders into the very presence of God. He stands unwavering, unweakened by the weight on his shoulders. And it's because Christ, because of Christ, that we have this access into the very presence of God. Our standing is not on our own two feet. Now hear this, it's one thing to have access to the throne room of God. It's another thing to stand in his presence. See, I can get in, but you can't stand. Psalm 1, toward the end of Psalm 1, it talks about the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. They have nothing to stand on. Christ comes bearing us on his shoulders, and he comes with the weight of that that burden of the, of the people of God and the, the, the sin that they've committed, but also the wrath of God. He comes with all of that and he stands before the Father and he bears them on his shoulders. He has the ability to do that. We have no right to enter. The tribes of Israel had no right to enter, even though their names are written on those stones. If they had tried, they would have been killed. If we seek to enter the Holy of Holies without being welcomed in by Christ, we are going to die. That's the point. But the high priest was the mediator between God and the people. And so he takes their names and he stands before the Father. And Jesus takes our names to stand before the Father. And it is on his great omnipotent shoulders With his upholding power, he carries us into the very presence of God. He introduces us into the very presence of God. Now, friends, these are things that we don't typically think about. See, we often think about what Christ has done. But this is what Christ is doing. Right now. Right now. Christ is at work bearing his people on his shoulders before the Father. Now, as our high priest, just get this, he knows our infirmities, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our inability, he knows the desires of our heart, good or bad. For he was in all points tempted and tried and tested as we are apart from sin. He did not sin, but he experienced all those pressures. He knows us, and in that way, with the sympathy uh, that that he knows uh, that he has for our condition, 
understanding us based on his omnipotence. He takes us and he bears us into the very presence of God. Only he has the authority to do that. Notice secondly, not just the the high priest's ability, but his activity. Notice here it says to bear the names before the Lord for remembrance. This idea of stones of remembrance here is important for us. That might seem strange to us who, who know something about God. Why? Because we know that God doesn't forget. And if you didn't know that God doesn't forget, let me tell you, God does not forget. He doesn't forget your sins. To forget is a passive thing. You don't know that you've forgotten. God chooses not to remember your sins. That's hugely different. Because he can remember them, but he doesn't hold them against you. And when we seek to forgive other people, we can remember their sins, but if they are forgiven, we choose not to remember them and use it against them. God doesn't forget. He knows who are his. So why are these stones called stones of remembrance? I mean, if God doesn't forget, what is going on here? The idea of remembrance here is to consider and willfully set your mind on and think about something. When we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He's not saying you wake up on Sunday morning and go, oh yeah, it's the first Sunday of the month. It's, it's the Lord's Supper. That's great. I remember the Lord's Supper. No, the whole point of this is that as we are gathered for the Lord's Supper and we're taking the elements, we are consciously and willfully setting our minds and hearts to think about, to dwell on and to ponder the beauty and the magnitude of what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. And by virtue of what we're saying today, what he is doing now. We are remembering. We, we're, we're, so God isn't, it's not like Jesus is going in, God's up there on the throne, he's like, what's going on today? Well, you know, I wanted to remind you about your people. Oh, who? Oh, them. No, God knows all that. But when Jesus goes in, he is appealing to the Father to focus on those who are his. Oh, friends, that's so, so helpful. When the high priest comes before the father bearing the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders, he's doing so in order for the father to consciously and willfully set his mind on his people. He's coming to represent God's people saying, Lord, these are the people that you said would show, you would show your steadfast love to. He's reminding him. Not that God has forgotten about that, but he's saying, dwell on them, look at them. So when Christ stands before the Father, he also shoulders the names of all of those who are his through the cross, and he sets his mind on us. Jesus, our mediator, becomes the means to cause God to direct his thoughts and attentions to his people. So when Jesus is interceding for us, he's not just saying, oh, God, I just want to they got some prayer requests. I want to let you know about it. No, no. He's coming before the Father. He's bearing the weight and the burden of his people before the Father so that the Father will remember, will draw his attention to that particular need. And friends, we, we appeal to this regularly, but we don't even realize it. 
It's all become habit for us, but it might change how you pray. When we finish our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name. We're, we're praying to the Father, and we're saying, in Jesus' name. What does that mean? We're, we're reminding God of what Christ or what God already knows, that his Son died on the cross, paid for our sins, welcomed us into the family, and has given us all these wonderful blessings for living. We're saying, when we say, in Jesus' name, God, this is what you know Christ has done. And we're coming to you based on what we know to be true, that we have access to you through your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. And Christ is saying to the Father on our behalf, look here, look at my shoulder, Look at the names I'm bearing, and for my sake, deal with these people that I bear. What a privilege, what a right we have when Christ bears us in the very presence of God. Now, friends, this might be stuff you've never heard before. But this is a reflection of the one who is our Savior. You say, well, it's all happening way up there in heaven, and I don't understand it. Oh, look, may it give you comfort. May it give you wonder that this is what Christ is doing for you. Secondly, notice the breast piece of compassion. The breast piece of compassion. Now, we want to describe it first of all. Uh, this, this is translated breastplate in the King James Version. That's why even when I was reading this text, I was tempted to use breastplate rather than breastpiece. I may have slipped up a couple of times, and I might still do that, but that doesn't even say anything like that in, in, in the Hebrew. In fact, the King James gives you a picture that the actual breastpiece was a piece of metal, right? But it's not. It's, 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 it's cloth. It's a, it's a fabric similar to the ephod, um, beautiful with its gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and twisted fine linen, uh, just like the rest of the tabernacle. But there's some things that are specific to it. It was a square garment, about nine inches wide and high. It was a pouch in which the Urim and Thummim were placed. We really know little about the Urim and Thummim. We know that it's, we have a couple of occasions in Scripture where it's used, but think of them as stones to indicate uh, a, a tr yes or no or something like that. But they, they, they were used... Not just for kind of mundane things like, you know, should I have steak today or should I have bacon? You know, no, these were national crisis decisions that needed to go before the father and through the priest, the high priest. Um, you could discern what God wanted for you. OK, that was the purpose of that. And, and what kind of love is that? that? That you have a father that would actually give you some instruction and direction like that through this mechanism. So in that sense, it was the breast piece of judgment, or as many other translations would say, of discernment. It was attached to the ephod by blue cords and gold rings and weaved into the breast piece and was, was, was a beautiful array of 12 precious stones in four rows of three. And they were over the heart, these 12 stones, and, and on each of them was engraved uh, the, the tr one, one tribe of, of the twelve, all right? So, again, the breastpiece was a beautiful, colorful, and glistening garment full of symbolism. But I'd like to draw your attention to verse 29, which is where we actually have the purpose statement. This is, this is, this is the, you say, here's the description, but what's the point? What is Aaron to do with this? Look at verse 29. 
So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece now. He has them on the shoulder, but now they're on the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So Aaron bears the names of the sons of Israel before the Lord, not only in his shoulders, but also and in a different way over his heart. Once again, he brings their names as a remembrance before the Lord in order to incite the Lord to think about and dwell on his people. But these names are over his heart. And so what we get here is like the shoulders were, we're, we're talking about the strength and the ability that the heart here talks about his, his love and his care and his compassion for those who are listed here on those stones. And so Aaron comes in, he bears the, the names of the tribes of Israel that he loves and he cares about. As their representative, he has love and compassion for the people he represents. And like a father praying for his children, he ministers in the holy place for their benefit and out of love and compassion for them. And so again, friends, we have this object lesson, don't we? Just as Aaron had the names of Israel upon his heart and made his way into the holy place, so does Christ, our high priest. Je Jesus is the reality. In other words, Aaron is, my, is the foreshadowing of the reality who is Christ. And so when Jesus goes into the presence of the Lord, he, he bears our names upon his heart. Of course, that heart is that place of love and affection his compassion. And so he comes with a heart of love and a heart of compassion and bears these names before the Father. And so he does that in tenderness. He does that with compassionate thoughts towards his people. Now, friends, it is a comfort to realize that when we are going through hard times, when, when our circumstances are weighing heavy upon us, that our names, not our tribes, but our actual very names are on the heart of Christ. He feels for his people, for his children. In Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9, we have a wonderful statement as the prophet is reviewing his dealings with Israel in the wilderness. And he's reflecting a little bit here on the struggles of the wanderings and the afflictions that they were going through. And he says about Christ, he's identified in this passage as the angel of his presence. And hear this, it's really important. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And just let that settle in. Jesus, ultimately their high priest, in all of their afflictions, he was afflicted. When we talk about Jesus, our, our high priest, relating to us, understanding us, having sympathy for us, this helps us understand that, that when we are struggling, when we are suffering, he feels it. Why? Because we are there right next to his heart. There's a symbolism here. It's a beautiful symbolism that helps us remember that when we're going through that rough time, he knows it. He's not like wandering off doing his own thing, playing golf somewhere up in heaven. No, we are the object of his focus. And it's an object, or it's, it's a compassion, it's a love, it's a wonderful uh, expression 
of his love for us. And friends, we need to see Jesus not just as our high priest who is glorious in his splendor, because he is, but he's glorious in his splendor, thinking about his children. As Christ enters the holy place with the names on his heart, he says something like this, look here over my heart, the names I have bought, the names I have purchased. Look at my heart. These are my people. See, Jesus didn't go to a cross and die and and rise from the tomb and somehow skip off into divine pleasures. He is ever-present, ever-aware of all that we are going through. And part of his responsibility now, when you're going through that rough time, is to go into the presence of the Father and say, remember Sally? Here she is. I love her. She's struggling right now. And my blood paid for her. And I'm bringing those requests that she has made and her loved ones have made to you. He is interceding on our behalf before the Father with compassion because we are there on his heart. Isn't that beautiful? We have next the robe of humility. The robe is a little bit different than the ephod or the breastpiece. Um, it's a one-piece garment. Um, you basically, with a hole, you put your, your head through, kind of like a, a poncho. Um, it was not made with the same fabric that was used for the ephod or the breastpiece, but a beautiful blue cloth adorned with an embroidered uh, with blue and purple pomegranates throughout as well as bells about the hem, which meant that when the priest walked around and did his ministry, it was a noisy affair. Um, Now, let's think about the significance of this. There's been some considerable debate as to what's actually going on here um, with the robe, in particular, the the role, the function of the bells. Uh, Some think that they indicate just simply the movement of the high priest, in particular, in the Holy of Holies, that if they could not hear the bells ringing, that it was an indication that the high priest had died in the presence of the Lord. That's what Jewish tradition says, that one length of rope was, was tied to the high priest's ankle and the other remained outside the tabernacle. And if they didn't hear any jingling of the bells, the question was, is the high priest dead? Now, some of that may be true, Some of that is extra biblical, but what we need to see is what the text says. And certainly there's something about death that is at play here. Let me just read verse 35. This is the purpose statement again. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. I mean, the the death is connected to the function here. So if the high priest, uh, uh, sorry, the priest is, is going before the Lord, we can say it was not a light thing. He had to be ready to give his life if he wasn't properly prepared. I mean, if I ask you the question, you know, did you prepare yourself to come and, and worship today? You might say, you know what, my, I think my accounts are clean. 
Thinking is not certainty. <laughs> and in order to be a priest, you're always putting yourself and your life on the line by carrying out the responsibility of being a priest, and in particular, being the high priest. He's putting his life in danger for his people. So what we have here is an amazing display of the humble devotion to God and God's people when someone took on that role of high priest. So here we have Aaron and every other high priest before him. They are putting themselves in harm's way for the benefit of the people. And if the high priest died, he would be replaced by another high priest. But his death would be because of his sin, his unworthiness. His death would accomplish nothing. But with Jesus, his death was not because of his sin. It is because of our sin. So, with Jesus, the priest becomes the sacrifice. See, not only is Jesus coming in as our great high priest, he is coming in as that sacrifice once for all. Death. Death was part of the challenge of being a high priest. And with Jesus, there was death. But not because of his sin. Because of our sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 23, sorry, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Of course, this is a picture of Christ, right? He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once for, for since for, I got muddled up here first for his own sins and then for the, those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself in other words there's a difference between Christ and the high priest the Christ uh, the, the high priest had to deal with his sin before he could actually go and minister with Christ he is sinless But he takes on himself the sin of the people. We keep reading. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is our perfect high priest that though he is perfect, he still died. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And we look at the next description here, the turban, the turban of holiness. Describe it a little bit here. All the priests had headgear, right? But the headgear of the high priest was different. The turban was marked by a gold plate that had the words, holy to the Lord, engraved on it. So what's the significance of the turban? Let's read verse 38. Again, this is the purpose statement in this particular garment. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Hear this. Aaron 
with relationship to the turban that he's wearing and the statement holy to the Lord would bear the guilt. In other words, the unholiness of the people would become holiness. Now, I just want you to think through this. The people themselves had no holiness, but the high priest bore their guilt and took their guilt, and it became holiness. It's like, what's going on here? Let me try and paint a picture for you. Imagine you are a gardener, and you go out into your garden one day, and you're working on your garden, and you've got some new gloves. Your old ones are all ratty and dirty and all that kind of stuff. You've got some new gloves, and they're wonderful. They're white. They're made perfectly for you to use. And you get in there, you start working with the ground, and you start moving the bushes around and putting the mulch down. Whatever you're doing, you finally look at your gloves. What do you look at? Are they white anymore? No. They're covered in mud. They're dirty. They're stained white Gloves. Again, let me remind you of the picture that's painted in, um, in Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Just keep that in the back of your mind here as I bring out this illustration. Sin makes us dirty. But get this, when Jesus interacts with dirty but repentant sinners, our sins are transferred from ugliness to holiness. Jesus' gardening gloves remain white and transfer their whiteness, their holiness, into dirty, uh, uh, unto dirty, sinful man. His gloves don't become muddy. The mud becomes glovey. I want you to think about that. It's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because practically speaking, how can, how can our sins be so scarlet and then be made white? But Tide isn't going to do it. Even if you get the Costco brand, it's not going to do it. But when Jesus Christ takes dirty, sinful, wicked creatures like us and he grants us salvation, he takes what is dirty and sinful and wretched and he makes it white and holy and clean. His holiness is transferred to us. That's the picture here. Holy to the Lord. Even though you still struggle with sin, guess what? As you stand before the Lord, you are pure and spotless because of Christ. And that is what Christ does with us before the Lord. We don't have any holiness to bring. If you think you have holiness, it's not. It's ugliness. It's your perception of what is holy. Because there's nothing in you that is good. Oh, you might do good things, but it's always tainted by things. It's called the depravity of man. We can do good things, but we still deprave when we do them. But God takes all that and he creates clean clothes out of dirty clothes. He accepts us. We are accepted. Again, let me read the text here again. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Let 
Why is it that we're not slain when we make our way into the holy place? Why is it that the doors of heaven are not shut against us when we make our entrance there? Why does God not kill us for infringing into the holy place? It's because our unholiness has become holiness through Christ, our mediator. And because of that, we have acceptance. And so, friends, when Christ enters to minister on behalf of his children before the Father, he says, let me introduce you to this stone here and this stone here. Let me introduce you to the name that is listed here and here and here and here. Let me show you my holiness that is the ground by which your treasured possession boldly approaches you on your throne. And of course, none of this could happen unless there was blood that was shed. And that's chapter 29. That's next week. But the consecration that comes by way of blood. So when Jesus, our great high priest, enters the holy place to represent us before the Father, he comes saying, Father, I bear the weight for these, your prized possession. I bear the love for these, your children. I bear the scars for the sacrifice I paid for your people. I bear the holiness that clothes them in righteousness. Now turn your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This is so important, friends. Again, this is what Christ is doing now on our behalf. Here's what John says. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Do we get that God desires that we don't sin? As if we're surprised, right? I mean, we, we understand that. Notice what he says. But if anyone does sin, <laughs> if anyone does sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father. Let's just pause here. You know, a lot of people perceive Christianity, the church, whatever it's like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. You sin, you wicked person. You sin, you wicked person. Yeah, God doesn't want us to sin. If we're Christians, our goal is not to sin, but the reality is that we do sin. Why? Because we're not in heaven yet. We're still in progress. Our sins are paid for. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ. We're holy in God's eyes because of Christ. And we want to do our part to not sin. But the reality is that we do sin. And when we do sin, what happens to us? We start wondering, Lord, how could you accept me? Maybe I'm not really one of your children after all. I am so ashamed I'm so unworthy. How could you welcome me in now as I've done this? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. Jesus stands before the Father in the throne room of heaven advocating for us, saying, yes, yes, they've sinned. But Father, my blood, my blood has paid for their sin. 
Yes, I know they struggle with the sin, but my blood has covered them. Yes, I know they're feeling anxious or they're angry or they're fearful or they're questioning their salvation. I know all that, but my blood, my blood has covered them. They are accepted. And I'm here to advocate on their behalf. Look at my shoulders, Father. Look at my my chest, Father. Look at my hands, Father. Look at my holiness, Father. They are your prized possession. They are accepted before you. Oh, not that you needed to be reminded of that, but would you dwell on that as you hear their prayers, as you see their struggle? It's an incredible picture, isn't it? And then we move into this, this closing section, the priest commission. In these few verses, we find the instructions and the guidelines for the ongoing priestly function of Aaron and his sons. And we're not going to get far more into detail with that because it's really kind of a summary statement of what is already said in the first section. But what we do need to understand here is that when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two and something radical happened to the priestly order. Don't, don't miss this. Jesus, the great high priest welcomed all believers to become priests. Hear this. When you see in this context a high priest that's pointing to Christ, when you see priests, ultimately it's pointing to our relationship. We are a priesthood of believers. We come boldly to the throne of grace. This is one of the marks of Protestantism, where those who are part of the Roman Catholic Church have the idea that the priesthood remains, that you can't get to the Father. You must come to a priest. You must offer confession. You must turn to Mary. You must approach a saint. And what's happened in the, in the New Testament is that, is that we find that, no, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't come through priests, except for Jesus Christ, our priest. Why? Because we are priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, talking to believers here, are a chosen race. A royal, what? Priesthood. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Part of your role as a priest is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and what? Priests to our God. Not just a few of them, not just a select elite group of them. No, all of them. They're all priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. There's more that we could say here about this, but friends, one of the wonderful realities 
Yes, we see Christ in all his glory as the high priest, but do you realize that God calls you a priest? And that you have now the privilege of that priesthood because you can now come into the throne room of God based on what Christ has done? Believers united to Christ share in all that Christ has done. And in this case, they share in this priestly office. So unlike the Old Testament priests who offered sacrificial animals, New Testament believers rest on the finished work of Christ, the one true sacrifice. Now friends, let's bring all this to a conclusion. Knowing that we have full access to the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son, there's four things I want to challenge you to keep on doing. Number one, keep fighting against your unbelief. Now, friends, unbelief is a problem in the church. And unbelief at times comes as a result of a very shallow understanding of the gospel and who Christ is and what he has done. But when we have a deeper, more rooted understanding of who Christ is and what he has done, when we see that he is now presently standing before the Father, approaching the Father on our behalf, and that we are accepted because of his blood, and we're accepted because we're on his shoulders, and we're accepted because we're on his heart, and we're accepted because of the sacrifice, and we're accepted because we are holy. We need to believe that to be true. So you might struggle with your assurance of salvation. I understand. It's a real struggle. Fight to believe that what God says about your forgiveness is true. That Jesus is there advocating for you. He's not there condemning you. One time you were under condemnation. But now because of Christ... You're no longer condemned. You're welcomed into his family. And he is your advocate in the arena of the throne room of God. So you might struggle with sin. You might fall flat on your face with sin. And it's the same sin that you struggled with last week. And you just can't get out of it. You say, I just don't know if I can be a Christian if this is happening. Now, there's a nuance here, friends. If you're saying, I don't care. If you're saying, you know what, I have this habit and I'm really not too concerned about getting rid of it. You know, I know it's another simple thing. I felt I'm not talking about that. Those might be indications that you truly aren't a believer. But if you keep falling in the sin, you're like, God, why am I doing this? God, I don't want to do this. I want to honor you. I want to worship you. I want to live for you. That might be indication that you're actually a child of God. And what you need to do is you need to go once again to the place where Christ is advocating for you and remind yourself of the forgiveness that he has granted you. You are, in actuality, a holy sinner. Let me put those two things together. You still sin, but you're holy because you're clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. When God, the Father, looks down to you, he looks at you through the lens of Christ's righteousness. And what does Jesus even say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He calls sinners and he makes them holy. Do you believe that? See, we need to fight against this unbelief. Secondly, Romans 12.1, keep offering yourself as a living sacrifice. <laughs> Sacrifices were made through the Old Testament. Jesus is the sacrifice once for all. Now that you are priests, we are to offer ourselves as sacrifice that are holy and acceptable to God. Keep doing that. It's not a one-time thing. This is a daily thing. This is, this is life for you. What it means is that you keep viewing your life as living for the Lord, not living for self. Now, living for the Lord doesn't mean that you're not going to enjoy life. Because God in his wonder and his beauty gives you great enjoyment when you're doing his will. But he wants you to live for him. So every day you're getting up, you're saying, Lord, may this be a day when I can be a living sacrifice for you. I want my heart oriented to you. I want my conversations focused on you. If there's conflict that happens, I want to make sure that I am dealing with it in a way that would honor and glorify you. I want to be a living sacrifice for your glory. And you can do that because he has said you are a priest. But he requires that you offer yourself as a daily sacrifice for him. So fight to serve the Lord and not yourself. Third, keep clothing yourself with Christ's righteousness and his holy garments. I may have caused a little stir when early I said, you know what, when you come to church, you need to wear clothes that are holy and righteous. You may have thought to yourself, where's pastor going with that? I've been in churches that preach that way, and I'm not too sure that I'm dressed appropriately today. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you would. Let's just walk through some of these things. You have a put to death or a put off, and then you have a put on. Colossians chapter 3 and verses 12 through 14. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all the way. Anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And by the way, many of these things happen passively. I use the illustration, you know, you get in a car accident, you can look there at verse 8. You don't you don't kind of say, should I get angry? Should I be wrathful? Should I slander? Should obscene talk come out of my mouth? You're not saying, should I? Those things just pour out naturally. What Jesus is saying is put those things to death. Put those, take those clothes, remove those clothes, and put on now, verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, does it sound familiar? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put, 
all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, these put-ons do not happen passively. To put on means that you have to take off. In Ephesians 4, where Paul says very similar things, he says in verse 23 of chapter 4, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which means in the arena of your heart, you have to believe that the putting off is right and that the putting on is right and that you want to do this for the glory of God, not to somehow measure in your spirituality or somehow be kind of a legalistic way to get closer to God. You're putting on your holiness because God has already declared you holy. And because you, in the throne room of God, are holy because of Christ's righteousness, you're clothed in his righteousness, now as you live your life, you are to keep on putting on his clothing. So when you come to worship the Lord, when you gather together on a Sunday morning, or whether you go to work or whatever it is, he's like, put on my clothing. Keep putting it on. And when you find yourself walking out with some dirty clothing and you can see it, be renewed in the spirit of mind. Put it off. Replace it with Christ's righteous robes. Friends, this is your your calling as a priest. It's your calling as a believer. Number four, keep boldly approaching the throne of grace in your time of need and on behalf of others. Priests would go before God for their own sin first and then on behalf of the sin of the people. And when you come before God in prayer, you come first and foremost on your own behalf, seeking to reconcile your your walk and your relationship with him, but you also come bearing the needs of others. Friends, this is not just a task. This is your duty. This is what priests did. This was their responsibility. This is what they lived and breathed for, was to represent the people of God. And if we are priests, then we receive that to ourselves, and we commit ourselves to being a people who pray, not just for our own struggles, but for the struggles of others. That is our duty for one another before God. My friends, this morning, we've just seen a wonderful, incredible picture of what Christ is doing for us right now, but there's a reflection. He's saying, you may not be the high priest, but you're my priests. And so you have a responsibility to wear holy garments and to come boldly to the throne of grace, believing and living lives that are sacrificial before me. Lord, help us today as we contemplate, as we settle in to seek to understand in a greater way what it is that you're doing now as you have taken on this role of high priest and as you are the sacrifice once for all, Lord, what you are doing now for us. May it give us a a visual. May it help us to see your heart in all this. That you're not just... As wonderful as it is, Lord, 
coming to this earth and going to the cross and dying for our sins and being resurrected from the tomb, all of that, Lord, is, is a wonderful part of your redemption. And we, we celebrate that. We, we, we praise you because of it. But, Lord, help us not then to forget the implications of all that, that you now minister on our behalf before the Father. When we talk about having a relationship with you, Lord, you want us to see you and what you're doing and what's on your heart. Help us, Lord, to be in awe and wonder. Then, Lord, to, to flesh out our responsibility as priests who are serving you in particular by representing your people bringing them so that you can gaze on them. You can give them your attention, Lord. I wonder today, Lord, if there are people who are struggling with unbelief. They're fighting to put on the clothes of righteousness. That they need to, to harness their lives so that they can live as sacrifices today. Lord, I, I just ask that you would give us a church context of encouragement and help, but Lord, seriousness as it relates to sin and wonder as it relates to forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to fight the battle with you as our advocate mediating on our behalf. We praise you. We ask you, Lord, for your help, your precious name. Amen.